0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Over the last 20 years or so, mass circulation newspapers have been facing the deepest existential crisis probably since they first emerged in the 19th century. As papers tried to figure out how to survive in the digital world, many of them began to look towards the examples set by the Financial Times. Under the 15 year editorship of Lionel Barber, the FT showed that there was a path to survival through focusing on paid digital subscriptions based on high quality content which would be pretty impressive in its own right, but the years of Barber's editorship from 2004 to 2019 spanned a range of massive historic developments around the world, from the financial crash and the Great Recession and the Eurozone crisis to Brexit and Trump and on and on. In his memoir, The Powerful and the Damned, he describes all of this as, as well as his meetings with an extraordinary array of political and business leaders. It's a fantastic read, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the podcast. It's great to be here. Lionel, we'll come to the world later, if you don't mind. we we'll start with the newspapers. It's a subject close to my heart, uh, obviously. I know that in our newspaper, we were looking towards the FT for years, where we were trying to figure out how newspapers would survive into the future. In the book, you go into some detail on this. Way back in 2004, before you became editor, you had been with the paper for a long time, but you weren't satisfied with this direction and you made your feelings known to management.
1: I did, um, but I, I, I was a fairly quiet prince across the water. I was in New York at the time and I could see the paper drifting and it upset me, but, you know, I wasn't in charge. So I was trying to get on with things. But I think there were several mistakes and the paper was drifting away from being a primarily business and financial publication. It was sort of moving into the soggy um, muddled middle so, yeah, I do rec- I do say uh, recount a meeting with the proprietor where I say uh, rather dr- over dramatically quoting George W. Bush, um, this sucker's going down. And <laughs> and I and I said, look, you're going to you're going to have to make a change. It doesn't have to be me, but you are gonna have to make a change. So why don't you think about it? And they made a change and the proprietor decided to choose me.
0: Now, with hindsight, hindsight is a, is a wonderful thing, of course. But I remember when, when you, you were doing all this at the time, a lot of people said, the FT can do this, but most newspapers can't. That a general interest newspaper, it's much more of a challenge to survive in the digital world. The Financial Times has a unique kind of a product for which people... We know are probably more likely to pay anyway it 's a specific monetizable commodity in you know in a world of, of people who are making quite a decent amount of money and who can probably claim their subscriptions on expenses as well i mean there's an interesting point. I, I heard you say that you were horrified when the f t launched a sports page. you know you don 't have to worry about sports pages; you just need to deliver what you know your customers want.
1: I was mainly horrified that they then leadership wanted to launch a sports page because as i pointed out the only time they were interested in sport was when they were about eight years old um and they didn't really know very much about sport i do i loved rugby and cricket and i knew it but we we didn't have a competitive advantage so we didn't need to play in that sandbox um look the what you've just said to describe the sort of the existential crisis of newspapers and how do you change what, in effect, was a broken business model. That applied to the FT, by the way, as well, because, you know, we lost a lot of money in 03 and 04. um the, the, the point is it's half true because the FT did have a kind of core speciality, which then y- you could sell to a business audience. We had to figure out how to, and we did it by selling direct rather than being disintermediated through these other things like LexisNexis and Factiva, and uh, right? But the other half where it's not true is, I mean, you're old enough and I'm old enough to remember a publication called Business Week used to make loads of money. It was sold for a dollar. I mean, just because you're a business publication doesn't give you a God-given right to be able to survive and thrive. And the fact is we had to completely remake the business model. We had to establish quality journalism consistently which enabled us then to raise prices and we had to totally reinvent our digital um uh, platform for for the production of good quality digital journalism
0: And I think a lot of other papers, be they specialist or not, have taken their cue from you on that since. But I'm interested in the book. You talk about two messages. You're trying to clarify both to your internal team and your your journalists in the FT, and also to the outside readership, what the newspaper is, and to the internal team, you describe the FT as the newspaper of globalisation. And for the marketing of the newspaper to the broader world, you say that the catchline was, we live in financial times. And they're, they're both quite interesting lines. They probably have a lot more negative resonances to them now, both of them, than they did when you came up with them.
1: I, I just want to make one other point about the business model. I mean, in effect, you know, we had to become a subscription business. Sure. And, you know, really behaving um, like a, a subscription business where the renewal really matters, the renewal, mate, and and sort of, you know, understanding much more accurately what our readership wanted. Now, to go back to your point about globalization, yeah, I mean, look, it was a great tagline. It started to wear a bit thin in the global financial crisis. And then when you had the whole backlash, um, you know, we we obviously dropped, we lived in financial times. I think it was a, a slogan for its time. It gave It framed what the FT was about. It enabled me to sort of tell staff we wanted to be about the world. We didn't want to be about Little Britain. And we wanted to take advantage of a very substantial foreign correspondence network, which was, you know, more than 100 correspondents. We ended up actually, by the end of my editorship with even more than more. We increased the number because, again, that was our competitive advantage. But yes, you're right. Things changed and we needed to adapt to that. And We can talk about that.
0: For example, the, the Financial Times li- line is, uh, or living in Financial Times, and it strikes me, you know, a lot of people, I'd say probably myself included, think that something that went badly wrong with the global economy and Western economies in the early part of this century was the financialization of things which weren't viewed as being financial assets to be shopped around the place. The, the classic example is all these complex financial instruments which had their roots in People who didn't have very much money owning their homes, but then discovering when everything fell over that they ended up not own- owning their homes—that wasn't a great advertisement for the financialization of all parts of society.
1: No, but it, the, the, we live in financial times. Was still true because we did, and the banks were. You know, this was part of uh, part of the problem, but it was very much a phenomenon of the time. And let, let's—if you look at it today. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's still true. It may be not the banks themselves um, that are as powerful, but financial flows and integrated uh, capital markets, uh, an integrated economy, there's a degree of decoupling between US and China, but that sort of globalisation still exists. It's slightly changed shape. So I think, again, to conclude, I would say we needed to adapt what we were writing about financialization, financial capital. We needed to talk about the future of capitalism. And we also needed to write, and I'm not sure we got it completely right, very frankly, about the imbalance between capital and, for example, labour, where globalisation had depressed wages, where there were, you know, look, looking at the side effects, it, it did lift in millions and millions of people out of poverty. Uh, in China, places like China, India, a new middle class. But, but for the advanced economies in certain areas, it definitely had negative side effects.
0: We know that business and financial leaders failed in the years leading up to the financial crash. We know that regulators failed. We know that political leaders failed to some extent. What level of failure should we as journalists, and particularly if we're financial journalists, take on board in relation to what happened? And how much of that is about proximity to the subjects we cover?
1: Well, I do uh, write about this at some length in the first third of the book, because it is about the events leading up to the crash with talks with, with many of the principals, including the senior bankers in Wall Street, the central bankers. And I ask myself, you know, how much were we responsible in the media for missing the financial crisis? And the answer is, I mean, the Queen asked the question, like, why didn't you spot it, um, uh, to, the, to economists. The journalists, we got a piece of the puzzle. And I would argue that one or two of our journalists got an even bit more than that. What we didn't do was connect all the dots. Um, so we understood the, the risks being built up with all these exotic financial derivatives. We understood the dangers of leverage. But what we didn't spot was where the problem was necessarily going to manifest itself. I mean, in, in some areas, and, and above all, where I criticise myself would be, we, we did have very insightful pieces, but we didn't give them enough prominence. Now, the answer is, why not? Well, even from financial journalists, we often get criticised for promoting bad news. They say bad news sells newspapers. Actually... It's very difficult to be a perma-bear when all the markets are going red hot and everybody's having a party. Um, it's quite difficult to sort of... And you also don't want to be involved, get accused of scaremongering. So I happen to think that regulate the regulation was flawed. I happen to think that um, banks took irresponsible risk and I think there should have been greater accountability. The media's role was minor it wasn't negligible but it was minor compared to other actors
0: did it in alan greenspan's old old metaphor pour more wine into the fruit punch bowl when it should have been taken it away though a kind of a general sense of effervescence because the media is good at you know pumping up those kinds of things
1: well it certainly enjoys a party if that's what you're saying <laughs>
0: I suppose what I wonder is, and I'm speaking, uh, I should say this is a personal view here. I know with our own newspaper on a, on a smaller scale than the global crash, but on a very large scale for people in Ireland, I think we failed to to spot what was coming and what came was pretty bad in Ireland. And I think some of that had to do with both with proximity and also, you know, the you, you get very close to your subject, but also when your subject is sometimes of financial value to yourself, for example, in relation to property and property advertising and in Ireland, no matter how much we talk about glass walls, sometimes those things change. And one of the things that you were doing at your newspaper, and which lots of newspapers have been doing more and more over the last 15 years, I think, is doing non-journalistic enterprises of one sort or another. A lot of those things often involve people sitting around chatting and hobnobbing in, uh, in rooms before conferences and things. And there's dangers there in getting too close, aren't there?
1: Well, do you know, I'm I'm going to be, and I don't want to sound arrogant, um, but never, not once ever, did I ever feel any pressure or did I soft pedal on a story because I was worried about advertising because of, I was too close. It just never entered my head. And in fact, you know, sometimes I had some pretty tough um, head-butting type conversations with you know, some of the people who run the most powerful investment banks. And I'd get people ringing up, whinging, complaining, and I'd just say, you know what? We're not... It, it's, unless there was factual inaccuracies, it, it, you know, it didn't play any role whatsoever. Um, personal relationships. Look, we had, a, we had a, a, a book prize with Goldman Sachs, and that went through the financial crisis. In the book, I described one or two very difficult conversations which I had with Lloyd Blankfein at the time because he didn't like the coverage. But, you know, I I think by and large, or not by and large, I mean, frankly, I think I, you know, there is a tension, I'm not going to deny that, between access and privilege and where you, you risk compromising yourself. But I was very, very careful on that and very careful to insulate myself. Um, and... You know, I, I just don't think that was a problem for the FT.
0: It really wasn't. One of the things that's so striking about the book, and you have actually a list of dramatis personae at the at the very start of it, who are people who you've met over the years. And you do do an extraordinary amount of travelling for somebody who's trying to save a newspaper. I, well, part of me wonders just how the hell did you manage that? Because my knowledge of most newspaper editors I know is they're stuck in the office waiting for the thing to go off stone or, you know, Perhaps these days, waiting for waiting for our articles to to go live, and they don't actually have much freedom to go around the world. Maybe it's misleading because it's over the course of fourteen years. Uh, but you did seem very much to see it as part of your remit as editor to get out and about and go face to face with sort of the key players.
1: Yeah, I did because we were a global publication, and we had you know look, we've got sixty or staff in America. It's a very important market. Um, when we were bought by the Japanese. It was vital that I went to Tokyo um, and I did 14 trips there. I took colleagues with me. I mean, uh, I did make one rule. I said, I'm going to work. I mean, and I did work gods out. I mean, I don't want to, sorry, I'm being blasphemous. I mean, I worked very long hours, um, you know, call it what do you like, 80, 90, sometimes 100 hours a week. I mean, I did not, I did serious shifts and it was a seven day a week job often but I did say every year I will take two weeks to go somewhere and do reporting and plant a flag and do a sort of education. And, and I think that uh, taking reporters with me at the time helped. I also think I picked up a lot of stories, but the last point, and you know this because you've been in a journalist many years, the best editors are those that have great teams. And I had a team that changed somewhat, but there were key players who stayed without, and I could delegate and frankly, I was in touch with the office office, but i didn 't have to worry about what was going wrong. I also by the way, went into the office at by half past seven and I did twelve hours. I worked till half past seven in the evening, and then I left. I was not a person who hung around at night, mainly because in the in digital age you didn 't need to because it was twenty four seven so Yes, I did. Yes, there are always some risks in trying to be an editor and a reporter. But I think overall, the FT benefited because the standard, the FT pink flag, was planted around and a lot of insights and stories were gotten because of what I did.
0: So it's a kind of a, well, at least a dual role or maybe even more than two roles at work there, because as you say, you were doing some reporting. There was some of those meetings the results of those encounters ended up in, in stories in the FT. On the other hand, you were doing deep background for yourself because you're an editor whose reporters are covering the entire world. So you need to get out there and see some of that and see some of those people for yourself. But on the other hand, you're also, as you say, carrying the flag for the FT into Japan and China and North America and Europe and everywhere else.
1: Well, you know, if you're a global publication and you wanted to try, you're, you're writing for a lot of these people in power, frankly. I mean, I, I know Finton and one or two other people have said, you know, he got too close or whatever. But I felt that being able to talk to principals was interesting, and to you know see them in the flesh, look at them in the eye, hear what was on their mind. I think that helped shape the coverage. But you know, I wasn't just drinking champagne in some five star hotel. You know, I was I was in the in the slums in Mumbai or Sao Paulo. I was doing on the ground reporting in Bechuan, where they had the earthquake in Sichuan after you know in two thousand eleven. I mean, you know, I, I did spend time actually trying to go out in the ground. And I think all of that helped sort of set a bit of an example as well about what the FT could and should be doing. And I think by and large, the FT, although they often the correspondents on the ground would say they're they were, they'd usually catch flu after I left because they were so exhausted. Um, they had a good time. And, you know, we, 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 we got stories and set the agenda. And so I, I say overall, I think it was a big benefit. And, of course, I enjoyed it. There's no question, you know, and I, and I wrote. But, by the way, one last point, everything I wrote, I said, right, two independent editors, you can do what you like with it. Don't worry about me because I'm not marking my own homework.
0: Did any of them hack your copy?
1: They'd change things occasionally. They'd say, you know, you've buried the lead. We all do that. I try not to. But, you know, usually when I was writing 1,500 words or a lunch with the FT or something, I would not hand it in. I'd spend seven or eight hours writing it, doing maybe three, four drafts, so that when I hand it over, it was usually going to be pretty good. And I always told people, you have no idea how hard it is writing. The trouble is, people who write one draft and think they've got it,
0: no. no I, I, I completely agree with you about that. One of the unusual things about the FT, of course, is that it is a Fleet Street newspaper. It's based in London, so it's part of that landscape there. But as you've said already, it's a world newspaper as well, But but it is located in London. And you're very interesting on how you navigated your way through the fallout from the the phone hacking scandal and the Leveson inquiry and that. Do you think of the newspaper as a Fleet Street newspaper? Not
1: really. Uh, I mean, the whole notion was to set us slightly apart. I mean, we did not join the industry body. I I was leaning towards that, I have to say, but I got, you know, the the commercial side and also our owners at the time, Pearson, felt they didn't want to have anything to do with the Daily Mail and that. And I thought we could influence on the inside. But when they said... No, I said, okay, we'll have a, an independent, um, you know, because there was the whole issue about self-regulation or not. And I, you know, I produced the blueprint for the FT to have an independent, what I called editorial complaints commissioner who would review all complaints against the FT. And, you know, we'd have two weeks to try and sort it out with reader complaints, but otherwise we'd hand it over. Uh, uh, people say to me, well, how did you deal with that? Was, did you not feel threatened? And frankly, it was occasionally uncomfortable, but it was supposed to be. But I did say, I don't want a reader's editor. I'm not having somebody writing some column every week, attacking our journalists and being a sort of substitute editor. Guess what? And they said, well, why, why don't you want a reader's editor? And I said, because, very simply, I'm the reader's editor. I, I'm the editor for readers, and you know what? if I'm screwing up, then I'm not going to be around very much longer, so well, anyway, I won that battle. <laughs> but overall i think I think we you know the risk is that we were then seen as a bit elitist, bit arrogant, and i you know i'm 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 not exactly a shrinking violet myself but but I think we wanted to be rooted in the city of London as opposed to being a British newspaper. And we wanted to be global. And I think that's what we did. Occasionally, the French or the Italians or particularly the the French would call us Anglo-Saxon and, you know, unsympathetic to Europe. But in Britain, we were obviously seen as soft Euro-Federasts or whatever you want to call it. Um, (laughs) And we come to Brexit. But but overall, you know, if you're being criticised on both sides, it's okay.
0: I get the impression reading the book, and maybe I'm wrong, that you wouldn't have been entirely averse had it panned out to some kind of a, uh, a universal body in a different structure, but that really the reality was that the the, the ill-feeling or the very different um, positions of the kind of key players, particularly the, the Murdoch papers and the Mail on the one hand and the Guardian on the other, meant that it was never really a goer.
1: That's right. I mean, I, I could have lived with the universal, but... Alan Rusbridger at the time, great editor of The Guardian, he was very keen for the FT. I mean, we, we were funny because both sides were courting us because we, we were like a swing vote almost. Uh, but Alan didn't want to join them. He he did have conversations with them, but he had a real problem with the way in which the editorial kind of um, code of conduct and their, their, their sort of, I can't remember the name of the committee now, but it was essentially Dacre ran it for many years, the Daily Mail editor, and he just thought it was it was inbred and didn't do the job. I think a reform committee and a reform structure might have worked, but I wasn't that keen. I certainly wasn't prepared to go to the wall, and so we went we went
0: our own way. One of the many things I find interesting in the book is he's not the most exciting of characters who appear in the book, but he's maybe one of the most important in his own way. Is David Cameron, the FT, had supported the Blair government for, for a couple of elections. It Three. switched Three it elections. switched to in 2010, I think, is that yes. correct? To supporting the, uh, the Conservative Party and supported it again in, in 2015. Cameron doesn't come well out of the book, though. Do you regret that decision or was it inevitable, really, because of the shape of the British political landscape at the time?
1: Well, I th- I think that we'd come to the end of Blairism. I know Gordon Brown was very upset when we didn't support him and give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think we we held our nose slightly about the Conservatives, particularly on Europe, but we thought that he was a a new kind of progressive Tory, and certainly we were very much in favour of a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. And I think I describe in the paper, you know, it was, I sort of indicated that I wanted to make a switch, but I wanted to do it collegially. And I remember going around the table and, you know, I think there were about I, I invited a load of journalists in the room. and There were about 25 journalists and I, 22 and a half were all liberal Democrat. And I thought, oh, my God, we're not going to support. We can't do that. And I was conscious also of where the business community was. I think in 2015, it was much harder. We were unhappy as hell about the referendum. We were unhappy the way David Cameron was having his you know, nose tweaked by Nigel Farage. We didn't like uh, the Euros. It was more than Euroscepticism. It was Europhobia. And I think that was much tighter call, but we didn't feel confident enough in uh, Ed Miliband. We, we little did we know that he was actually a moderate compared to what was coming. But, you know, in the end as I I kind of felt, is this really, uh, uh, you know, an absolutely existential issue? Endorsements, how much do they matter? I think they mattered in 2010, less so later.
0: Cameron comes across as as very much of an empty vessel, and I wonder what you think, how much responsibility lies with him for what happened in the referendum. I
1: think an enormous amount of responsibility, and I, I found him, you know, really disappointing. And I used to hate it, the way you could never get a word in edgeways Or he constantly interrupt and finish your sentences as if to say, yes, yes, dear boy, I know exactly what you're thinking. And at one point I remember saying, actually, could I, sorry, Prime Minister, but could I finish my sentence? Because I don't think you do know what I think on this. And I just felt he was casual. He took a a big bet on the Scottish referendum and it almost went bad. And then, uh, you know, he made this catastrophic error on on the European referendum and fought a terrible campaign. So I think he will go down as a poor prime minister. And given what's happened afterwards with his shilling for Greenshill, this busted fintech company, you know, I just think it was very disappointing and very, very disappointing. And so, yes, I'm quite hard on in, in the book.
0: So one of the things I think about is the title of the book is The Powerful and the Damned. And it's quite clear who the powerful are. I'm not quite sure who the damned are because I'm not sure, I mean, some of the people here came to a sticky end in their business or political careers, but they were all pretty comfortable still.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's more damned in the court of public opinion. And, uh, you know, people who came unstuck, the bankers, they didn't go to jail, but they were certainly ousted. I think Cameron definitely fits into that into into that category. Um, François Hollande, perhaps. Um, who was a pretty poor president in France? Uh, yeah, and occasionally me, because I, you know, I obviously fall flat on my face at some point.
0: Well, you did fall flat on your face, didn't you? I think it's fair to say, and it's it's there in the book. You went to bed on the night of the Brexit vote, comfortable and happy that it was going to go the way you wanted.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I I I did think that we that the referendum was going to be lost a week before. And I write about this and I actually rang up George Osborne and said, What the hell are you doing with this punishment budget? Are you crazy? People are going to vote against. What is going on? And he said, We could you know, we we could we could we can't be positive. It's that boat sailed or that ship sailed. And I thought, Oh my god, this really is going down. I made the mistake of of almost basing the the view that they probably just pull it out of the bag based on a 40-minute conversation in Downing Street with Cameron, I didn't pick up. Um, you know, I, 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 it was it was a mistake, and I didn't pay enough attention to the some of the reporting in the paper, not enough, which was signalling very clearly that people outside London were going to vote Brexit for all sorts of reasons that had not much to do with the EU but other subjects. And we missed it. I missed it. And yeah, I was down. I mean, I, I, I just did coverage and things after, but yeah, I got it wrong. And I even, you know, basically told Mario Draghi, you know, that night, central bank president, you know, I think it'll probably be okay. Probably. Boy, did I have a wake up call at 3.10 in the morning.
0: So that would have been what what some people call a teachable moment. And obviously one of the lessons was that somehow a connection had been lost, whether not having the right reporters on the ground or or something more profound than that with the forces at play behind the, uh, behind the Brexit vote?
1: Well, I think here it is legitimate. And here, you know, um, I would say some critics, um, and I've tried to be honest about this, here I think there was a danger of me, maybe some others, but I'm going to take it mainly on my chin, being a bit too close to the elite, the global consensus, looking at things purely through a rational economic lens and not enough through an emotional lens because that was driving a lot of the voting. I mean, to to say that Brexit made economic sense, it doesn't. It didn't and it doesn't. But it wasn't about that. People were reacting to fear. People were reacting to, I mean, to use a technical term, um, bullshit about... Turkey joining the European Union by 2020, which was what Dummick Cummings was promoting. Uh, It was about the notion that we would be able to have the greatest deal. We'd have no problem with trade, friction-free trade. We knew all these were lies, and we thought people would see through it. But we we got it wrong, and I got it wrong. And that's why I'm pretty, I, I hope, candid and honest about it. And yeah, it was definitely, to use your phrase, it was
0: a teachable moment. And to what extent do you think that that decision, and probably also the, the, the Trump victory uh, a, a couple of months later, has its roots in some of the strategies which were deployed by governments in the West to deal with the financial crash? The thing you, you referred to a little bit earlier, the the, the the perhaps more concentration on capital than on labour.
1: Well, on, on Trump, by the way, I certainly thought that there was a chance of him winning. I did not get that. I, and I don't think we got it badly wrong. I think some of the commentary just said there's no way. But I think I would give us a little bit more um, leeway there. I think Brexit was, it, frankly, we we missed it. Um, on on the causes, the root causes, yes. Um, I think the balance between capital labour, the way in which the dislocation, economic and social dislocation as a result of globalisation of Chinese goods coming in, cheaper goods, uh, automation, um, the erosion of the middle class, the way wage stagnation, inequality, the fact there were some huge winners um, out of globalisation and, by the way, the concentration of technological power, all that... Um, Um, played a role, and I also think it's populism, the fear, exploiting people's fear. These people have come in, they're foreign, they're immigrants, and they're going to take away your job. And the second, even more powerful fear, and I'm talking again with the benefit of hindsight, is where, you know, can you think of a more damaging notion that the country, a country, has lost control of its borders? It's, it can't control or stem immigration that's what gets going to get people riled up and they'll vote for the populists and that's what's hap- that that's what happened there are many other things that were going wrong with polarization that you could see in america we could talk about that but but i think those very broad strokes account for the for what happened uh, in 2016 that i describe at length in the book and and analyze
0: oh, we're, we're- always fascinated slightly stunned by looking at this from where you're very close neighbours here, different country, smaller country with a different history. Um, We haven't had that same backlash. And I don't know, maybe that's because of economic cycles as much as about, you know, cultural reasons. But do you have any idea why that would be? Is it because of the the industrial heartlands being emptied, hollowed out in England? Is it because of a sense of a lost greatness or what might it be?
1: It's, you know, I sound like the White House press secretary, great question
0: <laughs> you know my
1: grandfather was Irish, so I should be asking him really I mean look i think I think some labor shortages in Ireland where you know clearly people were coming in to take jobs that were actually there to be had they weren 't necessarily di- displacing i mean you've got for example, a lot of Lithuanians in the um in the port area, that kind of thing, I think also um You know, Ireland has always been a very open economy as well, open to foreign investment. Um, And I also think, you know, you talked about, and I did visit Ireland, by the way, and it was absolutely shocking what happened in the property bust, the real estate bust, and the correction, and what happened to poor people in the public sector and the wage adjustment. It was absolutely brutal, brutal what, what Irish people had to go through. Um, and and much more severe than anything in Britain, by the way, much more severe. So I think the Irish, I, I feel maybe they're just a bit more welcoming as well. I think the just the last point is that the funny thing is that there were people who voted Brexit in communities which weren't even affected by immigration. There were places, some places where for example, the polls, and we know that they said there were going to be 12,000, it ended up 500,000, right? That was the problem, the scale of immigration in the UK and also the the way it was concentrated, I think that was of a, of a different, you know, number and scale compared to Ireland. So those are some of the reasons. But basically, I'll give you a bit of a tick for being just open and quite tolerant, <laughs>
0: Uh, we'll take that. But what do you think the prospects are for Britain now? I mean, moving on from, you know, the Project Fear stuff at the time of the of the referendum campaign itself, probably some people, you know, on the ground will say, Well, we haven't seen anything terribly bad so far. It's very difficult really to distinguish some of the numbers from other issues, COVID in particular, obviously, over the last over the last eighteen months or so. What's your best read about uh this Singapore in the North Sea or something something slightly slightly less economically vibrant than that?
1: I think it all comes down to opportunity cost. I think with membership of the EU and the single market, and I know said it many, many, many times. I've written it hundreds of times. To quote Boris Johnson, we had our cake and we could eat it because we had access to the single market, but we were not in the single currency. So we had currency adjustment. Obviously, you didn't have that in Ireland. We had... Uh, you know real opportunities we had a pretty good deal for the city as well and what we've done is lost that so w- you know that there's growth the economic growth that could have happened which is now not going to happen now the mistake of a lot of people is to think oh well that spells catastrophe it doesn't it means that the economy is not going to grow quite as fast tax revenues are not going to be as great as they were but the economy will adjust and they will do other things So you can see that there are some people, you know, Nissan with its electric car project, they think that the UK economy is a great domestic market. They're not going to be able to export to Europe quite in the same way that they did. But they've still got a very strong domestic market. Um, I think people will come to Britain because of flexible labor market. And it's a good place to be and to live in London, etc. So you can't write off the UK economy. Um, last point, it's, you're not going to have Singapore on Thames or Singapore in the North Sea. The way Boris Johnson talks, he's a, it's a hey big spender. It'd be different if Rishi Sunak was was prime minister, because I think with his background, Stanford, et cetera, he's much more of a kind more deregulation type guy. But I don't think Johnson is like that. So we're having a, we're, and they haven't really spelt out what the future economic model is. But to go gangbusters on deregulation, I don't think that's going to happen.
0: I've got one last question, but I'm afraid it's a very big one. It's a globetrotting book, but you spend quite a lot of time in Asia. And of course, at the course of your editorship, the, the newspaper was was sold to, to Nikkei in in Japan. But you also talked to a lot of Chinese people. And to go back to the earlier point about the word globalisation and how our understanding of that has changed, China is obviously the central force at the at the heart of that, both economically and also now strategically, politically, perhaps even militarily. I was talking a few weeks ago to the historian Neil Ferguson about this. He sees us moving into a bipolar Cold War situation with China. And the thing that I wonder about that from, from your perspective, from understanding the financial elements of it, is in the last Cold War, the uh, Soviet Union and the United States were not economically interwoven or interlinked or intertwined. How does a Cold War type situation work when our economies are also tied up together?
1: Well, that is the essential question. And it's also why I don't think the Cold War analogy really works. It's also, it's not just the interdependence, which is key, but it's also the fact that the Soviet Union wasn't really a serious economic competitor at all, whereas China really is. I mean, it's specifically trying to outpace the United States in technology, right? Um, and it is building up a very serious military capability in the Pacific and wants to push, basically, America out and change the balance of power in the Pacific, which is why you've know, you really got to worry about potential Taiwan, you know, a flare-up, a conflict, that this rivalry that you have at the moment the challenge is how it's um, you stop it from turning into enemy status as opposed to rival. Now, I think the answer to your question, which is about economic independence but but kind of military political rivalry, is that you are going to have a, a degree of decoupling, right? Um, you're seeing this with the crackdown on Chinese companies that are basically it's because. They've got data, yes, and the state wants control over data, but they also don't want them listing in the United States. They want them listing in Hong Kong, now part of the mainland after the crackdown, or Shanghai. They're trying to decouple financially, but they're also, um, it's not a full decoupling because on financial services, actually, you've got progress even for American companies. So this is a much more nuanced picture than the sort of static east-west divide. It's a more dynamic picture. I also think that there's, there are possibilities which are for cooperation in areas like climate change. There's a mutual interest in that area. So I see competition across the board. I see competition intensifying. I see serious areas of risk from taiwan to also cyber and cybersecurity uh because there are no rules there i think intellectual property stealing etc and i think that the challenge my last point would be yes that is a kind of really it's a strategic competition the question is how to if you like manage it how to put in some guardrails where people sort of understand what are bottom lines, red lines, etc., to sort of keep talking. But then finally, what does this mean for Europe? Where, where does Europe sit in this? Are we just the meat in the sandwich? Are we going to be forced ever more to choose between the US and China? The whole strategy of people like Merkel of Germany has been, I don't want to make a choice. But believe me, it's going to get harder and harder. And I think probably we'll lean America.
0: Lionel Barber, thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure. Good conversation. Really enjoyed it. The Powerful and the Damned is published by Penguin. Thanks very much indeed to Lionel. Also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. We're going to be back very soon in your feed, but do remember you can mail us with your thoughts and questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. See you soon.